Well, maybe you saw in your bulletin that the title of this sermon is kind of a funny one. Does God hate the same people you do? That actually comes from a a quote by the author Anne Lamott who said, you know you've made God in your own image when he hates all the same people you hate. That's a pretty powerful quote. And I think actually you're going to see reflected in Jonah chapter 4 this sentiment. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up, turn to Jonah chapter 4, the last chapter in Jonah. This is finishing up our series on Jonah today. Got to put the glasses on. Jonah chapter 4. Let me actually start in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, being the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God had appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and it perished in a night. But should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would make it come alive in our hearts, that you would open our eyes and unstop our ears, soften our hearts to hear what you have to say. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God's character is to be gracious to those who don't deserve it. Let me say that again. God's character is to be gracious to people who don't deserve his grace. That's a very simple but very big statement, isn't it? It's one that's easy to say, but it's actually one that can be very difficult to really and truly embrace. In fact, Jonah has been throughout this book, and especially here in chapter four, kind of the prime example of how difficult it is sometimes to get your arms around the bigness of God's grace. For Jonah, this is a a big seismic shift. When he really comes in contact with God's character, when he sees it displayed to the Ninevites, 
It's something that just shakes him, rattles him to his core. The truth is, God's grace is always pretty rattling. God's grace is bigger than we think it should be or could be. And so usually it is seismic in its effects. In fact, I would say this, if God's grace doesn't at least rattle you a little bit, then you may not actually understand it. That's really what we're going to do this morning, is highlight God's character, really take a look at God's character so that it can shake our hearts, so that he can start to do the work of expanding our hearts so that our characters might meet his. Let's dive into this story and take a look at God's character. When we open up, we find that Jonah is sitting outside the city, and the first thing that we read of Jonah's response to God's mercy is that it displeased him exceedingly. Now, in Hebrew, actually, this is an interesting word. It's the same word that's used to describe evil in chapter 1, disaster in chapter 1, and disaster in chapter 3. So, when we hear in chapter 1 that the evil of the Ninevites had come up to the Lord, that's the same word. And when we hear that God had brought a storm, and they talk about re relenting from this disaster that's been brought on us, that's the same word. And then when we hear that God had relented of the disaster that he was going to bring upon Nineveh, it's the same word. So you have Jonah sitting here basically saying to the Lord, it is evil in my eyes. It is just plain wrong. It is disastrously wrong that you would give your grace to these people. See, for Jonah, he just can't take it. He cannot take it that God would give his grace to the Ninevites. In fact, it's interesting, his actions, the emotions that are described in verse 1 are probably a response to the actions in verse 5. We find Jonah sitting on the east of the city. He's made a little tent for himself to shade himself from the sun. Why is he there? Why is Jonah camped out outside the city uh, with nobody else around all by himself. I mean, why didn't he just go back home? Or why didn't he find lodging inside the city where there's a nice bed and already a shade built? Well, I think very clearly there's one answer. It's that Jonah is camped out waiting for the destruction that God has promised. Jonah wants a front row seat to the fire and brimstone. He has camped himself outside the seat so that he can watch God come down and hammer the Ninevites. And he's there for a month. God said 40 days, right? And so Jonah's camped out there. He's done his part. I preached to them. I did what you told me to, God. I've kind of washed my hands. I'm innocent of this now. Now, let's set up the lawn chair and pop some popcorn and watch the show and see God get to work and destroy these people that I hate. But he doesn't, does he? God relents and Jonah can't take it. He kind of flips he flips out on God and he says, I knew this was going to happen. See, like this is why I ran away. Because you always do stuff like this. You always relent. This is the stuff that I knew was going to happen. I got on this boat. I was trying to go to Tarshish for this very purpose because I knew that you would do this. And then this is fascinating. He actually confesses God's character that he doesn't yet believe in. He says, I knew that you were a God who was merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know that. He knows it because he's actually quoting scripture there. We read it earlier. You heard Dallas read it. That's what God says of himself in Exodus chapter 34. 
God describes his character. And he describes his character as merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Do you know the context for that scripture? The context for Exodus 34? Uh, Let me give it to you just in case you don't. You know, Exodus, the book of Exodus opens up and we find Israel, God's people, are enslaved. They're in slavery in, in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And over the course of the first half of Exodus, God begins to inflict these plagues upon Egypt. And then he rips his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brings them through the Red Sea on dry land. He then covers the Egyptian army in that water, the Red Sea, the Egyptian army that was coming to slaughter his people. He brings them out into the wilderness and feeds them when they're hungry. He gives them manna and quail. He gives them water coming from a rock. And he meets with them then in the desert. It's amazing. God actually comes and he tells Moses, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to move in with you. I want to come and live with you. I love you. I cherish you. You are valuable and significant to me and I want to be with you. And then he gives Moses the beauty of his law. He says, this is the way now that free people get to live. This is how it looks to live in the freedom that I've called you to. This is what it's going to look like when I move in with you. This is how we're going to do this together. And I'm going to bring you into a land of rest. And it's going to be amazing. I'm going to do it all. I did it all in Egypt. I did it all in the desert. I'm going to do it all in Canaan. I'm going to do it all forever. This is my grace, my mercy toward you. Well, guess what happens in Exodus 32? As Moses is up on the mountain receiving this beautiful uh, news from God, the people are at the foot of the mountain preparing for his return, not so much, making a golden calf, fashioning an idol, worshiping that idol and then saying, you know, Moses just took a little bit too long, so here's the God now who has saved us. Let's replace this God who took us from Egypt, replace it now with this image that we've made with our own hands. And Exodus 34 comes on the heels of that. Exodus 34, God proclaiming his mercy, his goodness, his grace, his compassion, his long-suffering, all of that comes on the heels of Israel, his people's deepest idolatry. Right in the midst of them having made an idol to replace him, God says, this is who I am. I'm merciful. I'm compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And that's what Jonah now quotes. See, Jonah knows his history. Jonah knows his Bible. He quotes his Bible and he says, I know in my head God's graciousness. And I even know the story that me and my people in our own sin, in our own idolatry, in our own utter failure to follow God, he's been gracious and merciful to us. And I claim and celebrate that forgiveness and that grace. And I want that grace for me. But I don't want it for them. One of my children is reading uh, the book Night by Elie Wiesel. I think that's how you say his name. Uh, He's a Holocaust survivor uh, who wrote... uh, multiple books and has done many interviews, has written a lot really about what it was like to actually grow up as a child in a concentration camp, Uh, one who saw uh, friends and family members murdered by the Nazis. 
who saw children uh, murdered before him. And he's done an amazing job of actually helping for, uh, later generations remember the atrocities of the Holocaust. But there's this really interesting interview with him later in his life where he starts to just kind of describe how he feels about this, and particularly his thoughts toward these Nazi oppressors. And he says this, he says, you know, I literally have composed a prayer. And the prayer goes something like this. God of mercy, have no mercy on these who have killed children. God of compassion, have no compassion on these who have done such heinous things. And he says in that interview, he said, I believed it then and I believe it now that there are just some people who don't deserve forgiveness. What's at the heart of that? What's at the heart of that difficult ideal, maybe even somewhat understandable idea from Wiesel? And the difficulty of Jonah to grasp God's grace and forgiveness to others, not just him. What's at the heart of that? Well, really, it's idolatry, isn't it? See, something other than God's character has taken a hold of Jonah's heart. Something other than the gracious character of God has taken his heart. He knows it in his head. He knows God's grace and goodness. He knows God's character. But there's something else that owns his life. There's something else that he clings to for identity. It's nationalism. It's moral superiority. And it's pride. Here's Jonah who says, I know God's grace and mercy, but really God's grace and mercy is given to those who earn it by being a part of this particular nation, by being a part of this particular heritage, by being born in this race, by uh, being assigned to this particular lifestyle. Those are the ones who then can get God's grace and mercy. These people cannot. Or it's those who have kind of earned God's grace and mercy by living their lives in at least a fairly moral way. And those who are just too far gone can't get it. And furthermore, out of my pride, I don't even want them to get it. I don't want God's love and mercy displayed to others. There's a a really fascinating quote by Tim Keller. I'm going to put it up here and read it to you. Uh, He's commenting on this passage, talking about Jonah, and this is what he says. If love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people, or in this case to root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost, then you love your nation more than you love God, and that's idolatry. When Christians care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, they are sinning like Jonah. If they value the economic and military flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, then they are sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than in being saved sinners and children of God. Jonah's rightful love for his country and his people have become inordinate, too great, rivaling God. Rightful racial pride can become racism. Rightful national pride and patriotism can become imperialism. What Keller's saying is that what's happened to Jonah and what can happen to our own hearts is that we begin to cling to other things other than the Lord to identify us. And when you cling to something other than the Lord that identifies you, you know what that's called? Idolatry. It's the same thing that God's people were doing at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses was up getting the law. 
It's making for yourself an ultimate God or goal that defines you that's outside of who God really is. Maybe some of these things touch a nerve for you. Maybe there is that tinge of nationalism where you feel more identified by your nation or your heritage or your race or even your political party and affiliation within that than you do by the Lord's goodness, his character, his grace. Maybe there's a moral superiority that makes it hard for you to even desire that other people are saved. How do you feel about the death row, deathbed conversion? Do you know that... uh, Oh, who was, who was the murderer? Um, this guy who killed 17 people horrifically and was, uh, was converted while he was in prison. He was converted. He was baptized. He was visited then by a pastor every week for the rest of his life. He killed 17 people in terrible, horrific ways. And by all that we can see, he is celebrating with Jesus right now. How does that make you feel? What about the person who's done the worst harm to you? The person that abused you or abandoned you or took from you what you could never get back. When that person comes to know Jesus, how do you feel about that? Are we desiring to embrace God's character, his gracious character to all? Or do we just think that it's kind of reserved for those of us who at least have most of our lives together? Or how about this? Maybe it's pride. Let me ask it this way. Who do you not want to sit next to in church? Who, if they were converted, would be the hardest person for you to actually say, that's my brother or my sister? Because remember, when there is vertical uh, reunion, when there is vertical act, when God says, you are united to me, there's actually horizontal consequences. We're united to one another as well. We become brothers and sisters Who is the person that you've just said, man, it's going to be really hard for me to sit next to that person in church? Is it the person of a different race or nationality or even political party? Is it the person who just feels like they have a totally different lifestyle than yours? Is it the person that you've looked on and said, I know your moral record and activity, and it's so hard for me now to come and be beside you and to call you brother or sister? If that's us... (laughs) And uh, newsflash, it's me a lot. What it means is that our hearts are simply just too small for God's character. They are bound by nationalism and by moral uh, superiority and by self-righteous pride. They're like a sandwich-sized Ziploc, and God's character is a watermelon, and it just can't fit inside. So how does that change? How does God actually change our hearts to grow our hearts that we might come to know his character and come then to express it more. Well, we actually find this at the end of chapter four. This is interesting, you know, I think a lot of us when we grew up, this is me, I I thought the story of Jonah ended right after the fish bit him out. That's all I ever heard. Uh, Maybe you heard that the story of Jonah ended after he preached to Nineveh, but most of us don't get chapter four. It's a weird ending. And it would not make a very good movie, and everybody would leave the theater being like, what was that all about, right? Why didn't they cut that last 20 minutes out? But it's really important, actually. God actually gives us a, a, a lived illustration of what it means for us to have a heart like his in chapter 4. Look at verse 6. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant 
and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. God appoints this plant. God has been appointing things all along. God appointed the storm. God appointed the fish. It's the same word. God appoints the plant. He appoints the worm that's going to eat it. And this, uh, this big shade plant grows up over Jonah, and he feels great. In fact, it tells us that he's exceedingly glad. He was exceedingly displeased to see God's unmerited favor shown on Nineveh. He is exceedingly glad to see God's unmerited favor shown on him. He's very happy for the plant. And then the next day, God appoints a worm, and it eats the plant, and it goes away. And Jonah loses it again. And Jonah says, I'm, I, it, it makes me so frustrated and so angry, I don't even want to live anymore. I, if I can't have the plant, life's not worth living. Which, by the way, is a great diagnostic tool for idolatry in your heart. What is the thing that would make you react like Jonah if it were taken away? It's a good question to ask yourself on the way home. And then God really goes to work, proving his point. See, what God says is that he comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, do you, do you really have the right to be angry over this plant? Here's this plant that grew up. You didn't even know it existed yesterday. Here's a plant that grew up simply because of my love and mercy. I gave it to you. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to tend it. You certainly didn't plant it. You didn't tend it. You didn't care for it. You didn't do anything to it. But when it went, when it went away, you were heartbroken because you loved the plant. You cherished it. It was significant to you and valuable. But Jonah, look over here. There's a whole city full of people made in my image. I love them. I cherish them. They're significant and valuable to me. It is my delight to show my character to them by giving them the grace that they don't deserve. See, what God is doing is he is inviting Jonah to stretch his heart. He is stretching Jonah's heart so that it might break off that idolatry of nationalism and moral superiority and self-righteous pride. So that it might break those things apart, so that it might expand and meet God's character. There's an example of this that I read the other day of, uh, of a family that had moved back from missionary service. They were missionaries, they came home on a furlough, and they settled into what was really kind of the first place that they had lived where there was a little bit of space to move. It was a townhouse. Still wasn't a whole lot of space, but it was the first real feeling of home that they had had in years and years. And particularly for this wife, uh, she loved this place and she loved this. There was a little patio in a tiny backyard, and she loved the patio. She poured all of her creative energy into the patio, decorated it. It's the place she would go have her morning coffee. It was a really beautiful spot. Well, a few months later, some new neighbors moved in next door, uh, and the polite way to describe them would be coarse. Uh, they, uh, they, they played loud music all the time, late into the night. Uh, their, their language was laced with obscenities. They would urinate in the front yard in broad daylight. Their kids would just play in crazy ways and leave all of their toys all around. And it was so hard for this woman to know, like, how do I love my neighbors? How do I care for them well? And the breaking point kind of came when the, the neighbor kids one day uh, spilled orange paint all over her patio, all over the walls, all over the floor, just destroyed the place that she enjoyed the most. And she was in this crisis praying like, Lord, what do I do? 
The only thing that I want to say is I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. So show me how to love them. And she opened her Bible and she started reading Colossians chapter 3. That tells us to take off the old man and put on the new. And culminating in this way that we are to put on love. And she started to imagine it as, as a robe to be put on. And what she thought of was sitting in a chair and Jesus coming behind her and putting his robe of love on her and clothing her with with his love, with his mercy and his compassion, putting that robe on. And she thought, you know, the only way that I can love these people is if not only I embrace this robe that Jesus has given me, but I also then give it away. And she had this image then of her putting on this robe of Jesus's love over her neighbor's. Not her own love, but Christ's love to them. And so she started to think, okay, if I really did feel love toward them, if they were my friends, what would I do? And she made a list. And she sat down and she wrote out a list. What would the things be that I would do for these people if they really were my friends? You know, I would bake them cookies and take them over there. I would uh, offer to babysit for free. I would invite this young mom over for coffee and we'd sit on the couch and we'd talk while her children played. And she made a list. She literally wrote it out and made a list. And then she just did the things on the list. She actually baked them cookies and took them to the kids. Uh, she, she offered and, and, and did babysit for free. She invited this young mom over to her house, and they sat and had coffee and talked on her couch. And you know what happened as they talked on her couch? They began to know each other. And she began to understand her a little bit more. And she saw the difficulties of her life. She saw that, uh, that she was, in many ways, like these Ninevites are described, as, as sheep without a shepherd. And she began to have compassion and care for her. And God did something amazing. He actually transformed her heart so that she really did feel love even for them. In fact, when they moved, she wept because she had lost a friend. This is what Jesus has done for us. If you're a Christian, this is your story is that Jesus has actually come and put his robe of righteousness and love on you. You know, Jesus and Jonah have a lot in common. Jesus also was a preacher, preached a message of repentance. Jesus also was a prophet, the prophet par excellence. Jesus also, toward the end of his life, was found outside the city. But Jesus was not outside the city in order to watch its destruction. Jesus was outside the city in order to take that destruction upon himself. Jesus' character is to be gracious to those who don't deserve his grace. His character is to be gracious, yes, to people like Nineveh, but also people like Jonah. People who have such a hard time expanding their hearts to understand God's character. But when he comes and he puts his robe of love on us, his robe of righteousness on us, he transforms us so that our hearts begin to grow. They break off those scales of idolatry and those things that we hold on to to identify ourselves, they start to fall away and our hearts start to become at least a little bit the size of Jesus's character. And we are those who then want to show that love, that mercy and that grace to others. Will you pray that God would do those things in us even now? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the truth of the gospel. 
is that your character is to be gracious to those who don't deserve grace. Your character is to be merciful to those who don't deserve mercy. Lord, we want to confess that our hearts oftentimes think just the opposite. We think that we've earned your love. We think that we are in better standing with you. We think that we are more deserving recipients of your grace than somebody else is. Lord, will you strip us of that? Will you strip us of nationalism if it's owning our hearts? Will you strip us, Lord, of moral superiority if it's owning and identifying our hearts? Will you strip us of pride? And will you replace it with an understanding of your grace shown toward us and the calling then, Lord, to proclaim that grace to the world? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.